Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Welcome to this episode of Modern Management of Vitreous Opacities. My name is Allison Early. I'm a cataract surgeon and comprehensive ophthalmologist with the Cincinnati Eye Institute. And I'm joined today by three amazing panelists. First, we have Walt Whitley, an optometrist with Virginia Eye Consultants. Hi, Walt. Hi, Allison. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Second, we have Dr. Christina Wang. She's a vitro-retinal surgeon at the Baylor College of Medicine. Welcome, Christina. Hey, Allison. Thanks for having me. Good to see everybody. And finally, we have Dr. John Kitchens, also a vitreoretinal surgeon who practices at Retina Associates of Kentucky. Hi, John. Hey, Allison. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Before we get into our final episode of this mini-series, let's go over some housekeeping. Collaboration between optometrists and surgeons will be key to assisting some patients who are experiencing vitreous opacities. We are covering the full gamut of eye care, and we're all represented here on this panel today. Optometry, comprehensive ophthalmology, and vitreoretinal subspecialty. In our first episode, we went over standardizing patient history in the form of a questionnaire and whether that would have any utility in our care of patients with vitreous opacities. In our second episode, we went over the nuts and bolts of a good examination, and referral of a patient with vitreous opacities. On this episode, we're going to learn more about the surgical innovation for these patients. I'd love to start with you, Christina, if you could give us a little bit of a review of surgical innovations for vitreous opacities from your perspective. Absolutely, Allison. happy to. So I think the first point to make is that the vitrectomy of today is definitely not the vitrectomy of yesteryear. We've made incredible advances. Even in my early career, I've moved through lots of different changes already, and every incremental change seems to bring about another improvement that allows for more efficient and safe surgery. Let me give you some examples. The first would be smaller gauge instrumentation. I trained mostly on 23 gauge. I used 23 gauge when I first started, and then I migrated to 25 gauge when that came out, and now a lot of us are using 27 gauge surgery. 27 gauge instruments are nimble, they're small, and yet the fluidics have been optimized so that they're also still really efficient. And of course, going smaller has some potential benefits for the patient. Sometimes there's quicker recovery. A lot of times there's less leakage after surgery. We might not even need sutures sometimes through our sclerotomies at the end of the case. A big improvement has been the cut rates. These have gotten faster and faster. You'll remember the cut rates of yesterday were three digits. And then, you know, now we're cutting at 10,000, 20,000 cuts per minute. There's soon to be 30,000 cuts per minute coming down the line. And what this means for us in terms of uh, effectively being able to manage vitreous opacities is that there's less traction exerted, especially when you're trying to remove vitreous in the periphery of the retina, which is where the highest risk usually exists in terms of sometimes creating an iatrogenic tear. And so this in combination with optimized fluidics, which I mentioned earlier, also means less time in the eye. And potentially this combination further mitigates the low risks that are the risks that are already low in association with pars plane of vitrectomy. And last thing I'll mention, Allison, is really just visualization. John mentioned this earlier um, during one of the previous episodes, but visualization is everything. 
And a lot of times what we, even on careful examination in the clinic with all of our sophisticated imaging technology, you won't see these vitreous opacities the way you will in the operating room when you're actually inside the eye. And so we have ways of better visual, of being able to better visualize now. We have improved illumination, wide field illumination that really allows us to see the vitreous in detail. We even have heads up displays now with various light filters that some people are using to remove vitreous opacities. And of course, stains and dyes that help us also highlight what we need to remove in order to effectively treat these patients. You're so right. Retina surgery has really become so elegant and refined. I think those are really great points. John, do you have any comments on other treatments outside of surgery? Some patients might wonder about the possibility of laser treatment for vitreous opacities. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, listen, there's been a lot of talk in the last four or five years about laser options for vitreous opacities. Now, I will caveat this by just saying not done laser uh, vitreolysis uh, for the opacity. So I'm speaking only on what I've heard my colleagues say and what I've read in the literature. Um, but I will tell you that uh, so many times when we're removing vitreous opacities, it's not just about one Weiss ring or one vitreous opacity. It is a very diffuse um, uh, problem for these patients. Many patients will say they see just like a sheet moving over their vision. They have multiple vitreous opacities. And that comes from the posterior hyoid, where the vitreous used to be attached to the retina separating off. So Jeff Heyer did a great uh, trial, and Jeff is a fantastic retina specialist in Boston, incredibly ethical, where they actually did laser vitreolysis for Weiss rings, and they found that symptomatically patients, about 55% of patients uh, had improvement in their symptoms. But that won't take care of that more diffuse phenomenon that we see. A colleague of mine here in Lexington, anterior segment surgeon, did do some laser vitreolysis on uh, pseudophagic patients to see if he could help, and he was really quite frustrated with just how long it took because you have to, the, the floaters or the vitreous opacities are mobile. And so what you have to do is you have to wait till they settle and then you target them and you blast them with this YAG laser and it moves them. And then you have to go wait till they settle again. And it can take uh, an hour or more to successfully laser vitreous uh, opacities. So uh, I would tell you that laser vitreolysis, I think at this point, right now is um, is um, not as effective as a vitrectomy. And Christina can tell you, our patients, I tell patients 95% chance they are going to be drastically better after surgery than they are before. And I just don't think we achieved that with the laser vitreolysis. Uh, in addition, um, in most cases, uh, surgery is is covered by insurance, whereas laser vitreolysis is oftentimes an expensive out-of-pocket um, a procedure for patients. So in general, I think surgery is a more definitive option for patients, uh, but laser technology is going to advance and we may well in three, four, five years have a laser with tracking that might be capable of uh, ablating vitreous opacities effectively. Great. Well, you heard it here, everybody. Walt, I'd like to turn to you uh, as an optometrist. How comfortable do you think optometrists generally are when talking about surgery to patients with vitreous opacities? And what do you need to tell patients to prepare them for the idea of surgery? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And when it comes to how comfortable we are, it's going to go back to communication. And it seems like that's my answer for everything on, the, on these uh, podcasts. But, you know, that's something that I, I'm very comfortable with. A lot of my colleagues are. 
And for instance, we'll utilize our referral network. And so when we're talking about uh, the, uh, the removal of vitreous opacities, first, our retina specialists, they have spoken with the referring doctors, have explained the procedures, you know, that we were just talking about the various innovations on why vitre by the, the, the vitrectomy is preferred uh, over the, the laser uh, treatment. And so, you know, having that discussion and letting them know exactly what you do as a retina specialist, this is something that you offer, giving the, giving your referring doctors the tools and, you know, exactly what, how, what's the best way to explain the whole process and the procedure to the, to the patient, just like you've done with, uh, you know, with our group and uh, uh, with cataract surgery. And so, you know, it's just having that more continuous uh, communication is going to help improve what, the messaging is and the education is to the patient itself in regards to the surgery. And so what do we need to tell patients to prepare them for it? Well, you know, they're already complaining and they've been suffering. It's a quality of life issue. They can't see, they can't do their job. And so we, they don't know that this is an, this is an option for them. And so first, my retina specialist told us that that's an option that they're, they're offering. And then I say, tell my patients, say, hey, we have an exciting option. Due to the advancements, as Christina just mentioned, we can do this procedure. And I can refer you to what my retina specialist, who does the removal of vitreous opacities uh, with the, the novel instrumentation, removes the opacities. And then afterwards, it's going to improve your quality of life. They're going to put you in many times, they've already had cataract surgery, so you're going to be on the antibiotics, the anti-inflammatory, just like you were, but they're going to follow you throughout the procedure, and then I'll see you afterwards. And so I'm not going to go into the detail about it, but I'm just going to give them, hey, this is your problem. This is the overview of how we do it. I'm going to refer you to the specialist, and I'll see you afterwards. And that's essentially what I, what I do tell the patients. But I feel most of my colleagues are becoming more comfortable with uh, removal of vitreous opacities, but this is an opportunity for retina docs to, to reach out to their referring docs as well. I think you're spot on with that. Christina, you talked a lot about how the surgical techniques have evolved and changed and improved over the years. Has that affected your threshold or criteria for offering a vitrectomy to patients with vitreous opacities? Yeah, it surely does, Allison. Remember that everything that we do or don't do for our patients, there's a risk that has to be weighed against benefits that they will gain as a result of the surgery. And as that risk has come down, as our technology has become more refined, more sophisticated, I really do feel more comfortable now offering this type of surgery for those patients who truly need it. And uh, like John said earlier, these are some of our happiest patients. And of course, people are always nervous and, and you know, you should be, you should have a threshold. Obviously you can't take everybody with vitreous opacities to surgery. Um, people get nervous because they generally do start at very high levels of visual acuity. But remember that visual acuity doesn't always equate to visual function. And those symptoms truly can be debilitating for them. And so if there is a safe and effective way to help them for the appropriate patient, I think it's a really great option, especially nowadays. Fantastic. John, I'll wrap it up with you. Is there anything new on the horizon for surgical management in these patients? Well, I'll tell you, one of the newest technologies that we've just had in the last six months is higher speed cutters. Christina mentioned smaller gauge cutters and 27 gauge certainly is just so minimally invasive, but now we have 27 gauge and 25 gauge 
that are 20,000 cut per minute cutters. And, and so why is that number that so important? Well, the higher the cut speeds, the, uh, the more rapid your vitrectomy is going to be, but also the smaller amounts of vitreous you're cutting up to suck out of the eye. So the less traction there is in the peripheral retina, meaning less chance for retinal tears and detachments to occur. Getting more efficient surgery, safer surgery, as Christina mentioned, uh, so right now the cut speeds, but I think we're going to have some things with visualization, particularly with digital visualization that's going to be coming forward. Um, and then eventually we may have ways to better identify vitreous uh, in clinic uh, with diagnostics. And then once again, like I said, the potential for, you know, possibly a less invasive procedure like a laser procedure, if we have that technology that catches up with what we need it to do. Really great. Thank you all. Let's take a break, and when we get back, we'll have a chat about patient selection. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Welcome back to the mini-series, Modern Management of Vitreous Opacities. I'm your host for this episode, Allison Early. I'd like to discuss patient selection, which, like everything in our field, is key to success. Let's start out by thinking about which types of patients are best suited for surgery and could benefit from prompt referral. Let's start with you, Walt, since you and I are people who might be referring our patients for surgery for vitreous opacities. Are there certain patients that you think are better suited than others for considering this type of procedure? Definitely. And so, you know, it all depends on the patient. And, you know, as the optometrist, I'm also always or often seeing patients, you know, throughout, throughout their lifetime. So I understand, you know, what, you know, their, their wants, their needs when it comes to their, their visual correction. I get to know their personality types. You know, oftentimes, you know, if, if, if we're working together and you're the cataract surgeon, you get like five to 10 minutes to make a once in a lifetime decision for the patient when I've been following this patient for quite some time. And so, you know, if I have that patient that I know that, uh, you know, they, they really need the, the, their best vision, that we know that they're having these quality of life issues because of these vitreous opacities, and let's say they're an engineer or whatever it may be, you know, those are patients, you know, this is going to improve their quality of life. I have to be realistic in my, in my referral for them. And, and when I say, hey, you know, I work with, with a couple of retina specialists, they're going to, they're going to, they can remove those vitreous opacities to try to improve your quality of life. And so I'm going to make that referral for, uh, to, to them to address that. But, you know, when it comes to personality, you know, some, you know, I may bring in sooner than, or refer sooner than later, depending on their visual demands and how quickly we got to get them back to functioning, functioning properly. But for any patient, for me, if they're complaining about those, many of my patients, they don't understand that this is an option for them. And so I will bring it up if that is their reason for, the, for their visit. Right. I agree. It's so important to both listen to what the patient is telling you, but also to make sure that our patients are aware of what's out there in terms of treatment options. So I'm a cataract surgeon. I do a lot of premium intraocular lens surgery. And these are patients who are very motivated for the elusive, quote, perfect vision. So if somebody has a premium intraocular lens and they're post-operative from their cataract surgery and they're 
becoming very bothered by their vitreous opacities, whether they were previously existing and now more noticeable or possibly occurred after surgery. I think that definitely plays into my schematic for when I'm going to refer a patient. So patient motivations are, are very important to consider when I'm thinking about sending somebody to see a retina surgeon. Now we mentioned this a little bit before, but John, could you comment on how a patient with a different type of intraocular lens, maybe a premium diffractive intraocular lens, does that play any role in your visualization or your overall surgical experience as the retina doctor? Yeah, it's, it's interesting, Allison. So first I'd like to comment, I really feel like premium IOL surgeons, cataract surgeons who, who do a lot of premium IOLs, IOLs are very good at listening to their patients. And I think it's because they have to troubleshoot these patients' problems when they have them. And so I find that really good premium IOL surgeons actually send in some of the patients that are most appropriate for removal of vitreous opacities because they've really listened to the patient and they've elucidated this is a patient that's bothered by this and they can be helped with it. So just an aside, uh, but as far as the visualization is concerned, um, yeah, you know, when we're doing macular work, especially some of the older multifocal IOLs, certainly would cause us some issues with just not getting great critical focus when we're peeling macular pucklers or ILM. When doing a core vitrectomy to remove vitreous opacities, the visualization, uh, it doesn't have to be as crisp a, a, and as high mag as when we're working on the macula. So these lenses really don't affect us. Some of the newer lenses, like the diffractive IOLs, they really are absolutely great to operate through. And I've had no problems with some of the newer, uh, the newer generations of IOLs, even when it comes to macular surgery. Bottom line, for vitreous opacities, not a problem. That's great to know and definitely something that I will keep in mind as a cataract surgeon. Let's turn to you, Christina. Do you consider patients' prior surgical history and ocular history when you're making a decision about whether to perform surgery on somebody with a vitreous opacity? I definitely do, Allison. I think it's really important because, again, these are patients who often will start off with good visual acuity, and they're usually coming to you because they're so sensitive and bothered by those opacities. You want to make sure they have a top-notch outcome. So it makes me a lot more hesitant, although it's not a complete contraindication, for them to have some other ocular comorbidity. So let's say someone has advanced glaucoma. They also have an epiretinal membrane. You know, these, are, they, these probably aren't the best patients to uh, offer uh, vitreous opacity surgery. You know, the five key things I really look for when I'm thinking about who is that perfect patient. It's someone with persistent symptoms. I like to see six months or more severe symptoms that are debilitating and that really affect and impact their life. We already mentioned this earlier, but someone with a complete posterior vitreous detachment, ideally someone who's already pseudophagic, so you don't have to worry about that aspect of the surgery. And then lastly, that fifth um, criteria really comes down to what you're mentioning, which is that they have good visual potential. And generally that goes hand in hand with really not having other significant ocular comorbidities. Excellent. So Walt, one of the things that many generalists and you and I, I'm sure both deal with all of the time are patients with dry eye. Um, how do you feel about counseling a patient with dry eye about whether their symptoms will be the same, better, worse? How do you approach that when you're sending a patient for surgery? 
So whenever I have that type of patient, you know, it, it, first it's going to be what's their reason for their visit. And, you know, if they're a dry patient and, you know, I'm, I'm maybe they're there for a dilated exam, I look at the back, they have vitreous opacities, you know, and they're not complaining about it, I'm probably not going to do anything about it. And I'm most likely just going to keep treating their ocular surface. You know, when I review the, the, the examination and say, hey, you know, we do have these opacities in the back of the eye. You know, I'll ask them if it's bothering them. But if it's not really bothering them, they've already neuroadapted to that. And so I'm not necessarily going to send that patient. But I'm going to let them know that, you know, that is always going to be an option for them down the road. So if it ever bothers you, you know, let's have this talk or I'll give them our retina specialist information. But uh, so for me, it's going to be the reason for the visit that's going to drive, drive that. And so I would, I would more just stay on, on the dry eye, uh, dry eye part of that. Uh, can I interrupt and ask a question? Because as you, Christina and John were talking, we were talking about the, the different considerations. And we know when it comes to the premium IOLs, if the patient has moderate glaucoma, we may, we're most likely not going to do a, a multifocal, but we may consider an extended depth of focus uh, implant or uh, whether it's glaucoma, macular degeneration. So if they have floaters, what does that visual uh, acuity have to be for you all to actually go in and do uh, removal for those vitreous opacities? Christina, I guess I'll go to you. Yeah, well, it's interesting because I would say most of our vitreous opacity patients, at least the ones that I consider taking to the OR, generally are 2020 or 2025. And I think that's why this topic is really important to discuss because in the past, people have been very hesitant and even thought that it was probably a bad decision to take patients who are 2020 to the operating room. But again, to our earlier point, it doesn't mean that they're not suffering from visual function deficits. And so, um, you know, I would say that for patients with lower levels of vision than 2020, 2025, a lot of times I look long and hard for other causes and other sources of, of that vision loss. Because generally, when you have patients with vitreous opacities, they can actually see that Snellen chart pretty well still, even though not easily. These are really great points. As a cataract surgeon, I am very well aware that my patients may have an increase in their dry eye symptoms immediately following cataract surgery. John, is that something that you encounter after vitrectomy? You know, it's interesting, Allison. It really isn't. Um, you know, where, where we make our incisions three and a half to four millimeters back from the surgical limbus through the pars plana, uh, small incision surgery or not incising or taking down the conjunctiva. Uh, really lends itself to good preservation of the ocular surface. So we don't seem to see some of those dry eye issues. And if anything, if a patient has a mixed mechanism for decreased vision or visual symptoms, we certainly want to sort out the dry eye business before we go after the vitreous opacities. But sometimes if you can just take away one of those two problems, remove the vitreous opacities from the equation, their dry eye actually becomes more manageable for them. Excellent. Well, if anything, I think we've shown here today how important a multidisciplinary approach is to patients with these types of complaints. That's it for this episode of Modern Management of Vitreous Opacities. Go back in your podcast feed to listen to our conversation about patient history, which was moderated by Dr. Kitchens, and our talk on examinations and referral, moderated by Dr. Whitley. On behalf of the panel, I'm Allison Early. Thanks for joining us.